Last night, uh, after the, um, the best game ever, um, I got a text message from some buddies of mine. And every single time a new Marvel movie comes out, we, we usually go together as a group and see it like opening night. We're huge Marvel fans. And uh, is there any other Marvel fans out there? Come on, somebody. Come on. And here's the best part is like, what I love about Marvel is this, is that they're absolutely rocking and destroying the competition in their films and their TV series. They're just nailing it. If you've watched some of the newer ones, Black Widow or Hawkeye, the TV series or WandaVision, and now the upcoming Spider-Man I am pumped for, you would understand and you would know that they are absolutely perfecting what it means to draw people in in that trailer and bring them into the experience. If you watch a movie trailer, it's very, very intentional. It sucks you in. It brings you into the moment. It brings you into the suspense. It brings you into the drama. What, and they do it so well. They get you right into the scene. You feel like you're swinging from skyscraper to skyscraper at, with Spider-Man. As he's slinging the webs and he's saving the city, you, you understand the tension that he is feeling. You can feel the wind almost blowing through your face mask as you are Spider-Man and you can feel the, the strength pulsating in your spidey senses. It brings you directly into the moment. And here's this moment I love in the new Spider-Man trailer where Peter Parker is faced with the dilemma and, and he looks up and you just see him and he's battered and he's beaten and he's worn and he's tired and dirty. And he just utters these words of, I just can't save them all. You feel the tension and the weight resting on his shoulders. I just can't save them all. You can feel it. This is the intentional purpose of a movie trailer. You feel what the characters are feeling. It's essentially what happens with all good storytellers and all good movie trailers. They bring you into the moment. And so what if I were to task you with making, creating, and writing, and directing the best movie trailer for the most epic story ever told? What if I were to give you the script and say, create a movie trailer based off of this story. Make it as epic as you can. Bring people into the moment. Suck them in. Don't let them get off the hook. How would you go about it? Where would you start? Who would you start with? What sensations, what emotions, what tension would you build into that movie trailer? How would you share that the story that these people are about to watch, the story that's about to unfold right before our eyes, this story is the most epic story of all time. This story is the one who can and will and is the only one that is able to save all of humanity. Where would you even begin? You see, that exact theme was tasked to the writers of, this, of the Gospels. This exact problem and tension was tasked with the writers of the Gospels. 
How do I share the most epic story of the most epic person to ever walk this world? Where do I even begin? And Matthew, that's where we're going to be hanging out with today. Matthew starts it in the most Marvel cinematic way possible. A genealogy. (laughs) This is what he says. This is the genealogy. You can almost feel the lights go low. The tension builds. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. The son of David. Son of Abraham. You ever wonder or hope that you ever have like a Morgan Freeman type of voice in certain moments? This would be a perfect moment for that. I don't have it, so sorry. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah, the father of Perez and and Zerah, and whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Amminadab. Amminadab, the father of Nashim. Nashim, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. Jesse, the father of King David. And David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Obajah. Obajah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Joshua. Joshua, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah, the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Amon. Amon, the father of Josiah. Josiah, the father of oh, Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile of Babylon. Can you feel the suspense building? This is the climatic point right here. And after the exile of Babylon, Jeconiah, the father of Shatil, Shatil, the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel, the father of Abedad, Abedad, the father of Eliakim, Eliakim, the father of Azor, Azor, the father of Zodak, Zodak, the father of Akim, Akim, the father of Elihad. I'm almost out of breath here. Elihad, the father of Elazar, Elazar, the father of Matham, and Matham, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. Mary, mother of Jesus, who's called the Messiah. A genealogy. You see, when we think of these moments, these movie trailers, these intense moments, we don't think of a genealogy. But in this moment, Matthew is scripting out in the most Marvel cinematic way. The genealogy and the coming of the Messiah. Here's what's so intriguing is that is, is you can almost feel the tension because we have to understand that before Matthew writes this, before Jesus comes, there's 400 long years of prophetic silence. There's 400 long, excruciating years between the Old Testament and the last words of the prophets of old in this New Testament that is being written, the new covenant that is coming. 400 years of longing 
and waiting. 400 years of desiring and searching. 400 years where it was silent. But then, an angel would appear to a young teenage girl. Some shepherds would see a brilliant light, a brilliant star shining. Some wise men would, would go on a journey to seek him. An uncomfortable, anxious King Herod would be desiring to kill him. All of these scenes would be put into play all in the matter of a few moments. This Messiah, the Messiah, that we've waited so long for, he's here. The movie trailer would end. The date would show. And you'd desire to purchase your tickets right then and there. Matthew starts this book off, connecting the old and the new. He says, we are all connected. He, he's bringing them all the way back. And he says, don't forget this. And he says, there's also something new coming. Don't miss it. He is very intentional right now. The past and the present now collide right here in this very genealogy. You see, because Matthew would answer the question of, well, who is this Jesus? What is he doing? Who will he be? What will he be doing? Those are questions that the Jews would want to have answered. Who is the Messiah? When will he start? And what will he be doing? But the Gentiles are searching for answers too. The Gentiles are searching for the question of, well, is he really the Messiah? And there's even a bigger question that the Gentiles would be asking, well, is this Messiah even for me though? Is the Messiah for me? You see, Matthew is very deliberate here. He's clear, clearly sharing it. He's clearly touching on both of these tensions in the Jewish tension, the Gentile tension. Not only who is he, but is he for me? And Matthew is clearly saying this, and he's sharing that this is him, this is the one, this is Jesus, who can and will save everyone. This is Jesus, who can and will save everyone. You see, a genealogy in, in those days was used to prove the, the lineage and the worth of, of the person they're describing. It, it would show the identity, it would show the power, it would show the heritage of the main man. And so what's interesting is when you look at this, Matthew traces Jesus' genealogy back to basically two main people. David and Abraham. Jesus, the Messiah, he's here for everyone. And he comes through the line of David and through Abraham. And it's very intentional. Here's why. David, a Jewish king, probably one of the most, if not the most, well-known Jewish king. King David, well-respected, highly elevated, deeply loved. King David. And Abraham, 
a Gentile who became the father of the Jewish people. Father Abraham. Many blessings. Again, highly respected, highly elevated. And he's dropping hints throughout this whole entire genealogy of who Jesus is and who he is about. Look deeper. When you look at King David, it says that he is, going, he is the son of David. Son of David. This is the most celebrated king in Israel's history. There's a deep longing. There's a deep sense of connectiveness with David. And, and scripture tells, prophecy tells that this Messiah will come from the line, from an offshoot of David. And so we know, we know that, that Jesus, when he comes, fulfills the prophecy back of the prophet Isaiah, that he will reign on David's throne. And what does that mean? David was by far one of the best kings. And he's coming from David's line. He's going to be the king of kings. And when you are a king, you have a kingdom. And everything in your kingdom goes to your word, your plan, your will. And a descendant of Abraham. Here's what's so interesting about this. The descendant of Abraham, the seed of Abraham in whom all nations would be blessed. We remember that in the, in, the, in the covenant that God makes with Abraham, that he says, I will, make, I will bless and make many nations from you. This is the blessing that is coming from the, the, the covenant. Jesus is fulfilling that. Way back in the Old Testament, here Jesus stands, fulfilling it in perfection. And what's so beautiful about this is that Father Abraham is the father of all people. He was a Gentile who became the father of Jewish men. God has the intention of bringing all people together in his name, in his love, to bless everyone. And Jesus fulfills this. And remember, remember that they are both Jew and Gentile here. So, while the Jews are ecstatic the Messiah is finally here, the Jews are pumped the Messiah is here. The Gentiles are still asking the question, is he for us though? Does this really matter for us? Is this going to be a big change for us? Can he save us too? I think a lot of times in our own current lives and even day, maybe we even ask that same question. Can he save me too? Is he for me? I'm pretty messed up. Does he still want me? And when Matthew is connecting David and Abraham to Jesus, it's a full circle connection. It's a full circle connection. The Messiah, Jesus, is for everyone. That's his message. That this Messiah, Jesus, is for everyone. He's, he's putting it right out there in the very open. It's not just about the Jews or the Gentiles. It's about all of us. And we all point back to Jesus, the Messiah, because he is for everyone. And what's interesting is, when you read this genealogy, we have to understand that this genealogy is actually not like other genealogies back in the day. 
Matthew's very intentional here, and he puts five names in this genealogy who traditionally would never be in this genealogy. The name of five females. The name of five females. These are them. Um, I think we looked at them already. Can we just go back to the scriptures? Tamar. Rahab. Ruth. This is my intriguing one for me. Uriah's wife. She doesn't even get her name in there. But we all know who we're talking about, don't we? Bathsheba. Bathsheba. That's interesting, isn't it? And the last one. Mary. <laughs> A teenage girl. Not married. Pregnant with the Messiah. You have prostitutes. You have Gentile spies. You have sexual misconduct. You have teenage pregnancy. Can we just say that these ladies being in this genealogy is scandalous? Because back in those days when, when Matthew would write this, when they would read this, every time that one of those names was mentioned, you could almost feel the crowd tense up. There's an asterisk by their name. There's this sense and emotion that goes with each and every one of these ladies. And when they are mentioned, there's this sense of why are they there? They hold no value in Jewish culture. They're low on the totem scale. The Jews would even say that life actually comes from a male because it's only after being with a male that life comes in the form of pregnancy. There is no power essentially in the female, according to the Jewish culture. So Matthew scandalously writes this genealogy, intentionally putting these five women in here for very specific reasons. These ones all have a story. Broken past, broken sexuality. Some of them aren't even Jews. But they're in here. They're in here. And every single one of the people that would read this genealogy would know every single one of their stories. And every time those names were called or said or read, there was this tensing of the muscles. There was this cringe that came about them because their stories would come to mind. And how could the Messiah come from people like that? But Matthew is very clear. This Messiah is for everyone. And if the Messiah is for everyone, that means he can and he will redeem anything. Amen? Amen. So in order for Jesus to be here to redeem everyone, it means that there's nobody too far gone. There's no story too far gone. There's no story too broken, too messed up. It doesn't matter how, how jacked up or tore up from the floor up you may be. My Jesus can redeem you. 
And Matthew is very clear. This series, we're going to look at this, that Matthew is very clear. The Gospels are very clear. The Messiah is here to redeem and restore what once was broken to now being restored to perfection in his name and his love. Matthew says it very clearly. The Messiah is for everyone. And so in the midst of reading all of this, you can almost feel the tension after those 400 years. The 400 years of silence and longing and desiring and waiting and searching, you can almost feel that each and every day that they would hope this Messiah would come. And now he finally is here to only discover that this, these are the people he comes from? It doesn't make much sense. And to be honest with you, I, I just put myself in that moment. Those 400 years between the Old Testament and New Testament. Can you imagine the emotions in those moments waking up in the morning? Longing and hoping and desiring that today is the day the Messiah, the Messiah would come. That maybe today he would come to save us. Maybe today is the day where God has said, enough is enough. I am here. I imagine it would have felt a lot like being in a dark, dark room. I imagine it would have felt pretty lonely at times. I can imagine it would have felt pretty hopeless, confusing, frustrating, desiring and longing, hoping and wishing Day after day, hour after hour, you get tired. You get tired waiting for things to change. And what's so interesting is that every season, every time, that season changes and it comes and goes, and nothing changed in those 400 years, I can only imagine that their hope started to dwindle. Frustrations kept on growing. What's been interesting to me is that uh, in this season currently, I have felt just this weight of just frustration and darkness and even anger. I'm longing for things to change. I've, I've had these just different weights on my shoulders I felt like. The weight of, I mean, we recently just moved and the weight of a new house now, and everything that goes within that. And then when things go wrong in the new house, and now you have to figure all that out, and you're frustrated. And even this morning, literally right before I came here, I remember just standing there and just being like, Lord, could you please just make something go right? Just one thing? P please? <laughs> Catch a break? There's been days where I have felt like I've been just walking through a tunnel with little fake artificial LED lights lighting the way. That this world around me and the brokenness, the pain, the hurts, the harm in our world, seeing more kids lose their lives because of a school shooting, like, I feel, I feel like I've been in a dark tunnel sometimes. Hey, anybody else maybe? Like, it is, it is hard. 
And I know there's a hope and I just long for it sometimes. But there's days where I just feel like, Lord, like, can you just turn on the lights in my tunnel? Because I don't want to hit another thing. I don't want to stub my toe another time. The weight of navigating new family dynamics. Did you know adding a three-month-old little baby girl to your house changes dynamics rather quickly? Like a change of dynamics from like barely no diapers in my house to now I have like newfound stock in Pampers. Navigating family dynamics of still the foster care system and the frustrations within that. Navigating the weights of different personal friendships and relationships. Still navigating the weight of losing one of my closest friends who just celebrated a birthday, but he passed away three years ago. The weight of losing someone in the holiday season stinks, by the way. I've just felt like I've been navigating and walking through some dark tunnels sometimes. There's a, there's a writer, and he puts it this way, though. Wendell Berry. This is what he says. It gets darker and darker. And then Jesus, Jesus is born. What's interesting to me about that is this, is even in the moments where I have felt like I am just in a dark tunnel where I am just searching and longing and hoping. There's little moments where I get the glimpses of the light of the world into my life. When I'm the most frustrated and, and then to hear my four-year-old playing with the four-month-old baby girl and telling her how beautiful she looks and Jesus made her that way. That's a little glimpse of a beautiful light of the world. Or sitting down to, to pray and have my three-year-old pray and thank God for everything and anything under the sun, including Spider-Man. <laughs> he prays and he thanks God for his food about six times. Or the glimpse late at night holding baby girl as she sleeps in my arms. Thinking to myself that how did a teenage girl navigate this hundreds and hundreds of years ago? Oh, by the grace and goodness of God. Because I imagine Mary would have felt pretty dark in those moments. See, the absolute beauty in this is that I don't have to have it all together navigating the dark tunnels because there's a God who already has it all together. That Jesus, the Messiah, he came to redeem all people, the broken, the messed up, the tore up. He came to redeem all people. And if you don't believe me, read this. 
I love what Rich Velado says about this. Scripture isn't a collection of sanitized stories of holy people. It's a collection of stories of ordinary, broken people loved by God and made holy through a righteousness outside of themselves. This, isn't, this is a messy book. It's literally rated R from the get-go. This is a risky text because it will change your life. This is, not, this is not a clean book either. Read the genealogy again. Start to understand their stories. I love that the Bible is messy because so am I. <laughs> I'm real messy. And in this season, I'm sure I'm not alone. I need an extra dose sometimes of God's goodness and his mercy in my life. I don't have to get it all right. I don't even have to be near perfect. I just get to trust the one who perfects perfection each and every day. As we close today, as Josh comes back up, here's, here's what I want to leave us with. Is that even in the mess, even in the hardships, even in the struggles of today, even in all of this, I don't have to have it all together. Because when I'm a child of God, I get to say it is well with my soul even when it isn't with my circumstances. It is well with my soul even when my circumstances, it might not be. And for some of us today, we need to hear that you too can be called a child of God. You too can have the moment where you, you place your hope and your trust in Jesus. Because your life may feel like it's falling apart and you may be searching for God and you may be searching for answers and you just can't seem to find them. But when you are a child of God, it doesn't matter your circumstances because it is still well with your soul. Jesus came with an open invite. He said, come to me all. Drink of the living water. Eat of my body. He didn't discriminate. He didn't exclude. He said, come to me. Even in the moments, the season when we feel darkness or hardships and struggles may be burdening on us. Remember that, that God stepped out of heaven came to us, lived with us, put on flesh, bones, and blood, got messy with us, died and rose again so that we can be with him. Emmanuel, God with us. His name hasn't changed. He is still God here with us today. Last week, I asked you to write down a name on a piece of paper. How have you been doing with praying for that person? Who needs to be here with us these next few weeks? Do we understand that this season, this time, every single year is the most opportune time for people to hear the gospel? Do we understand that people are more than willing to come to a Christmas Eve service more times than not than any other service that we have on Sunday morning? We understand that people are open 
and desiring and wanting and longing, especially in the midst of coming out of a pandemic, searching for hope. Do we remember that we have the hope of the world and we get to share it? So who needs to be here with you? Who needs to be here with you next week? Who maybe do you need to drive and pick up and bring with you next week? Who do you need to invite to Christmas Eve? Maybe you join us online. Who, who do you need to invite over and make cinnamon rolls that morning so that they can watch service with you? Who needs to be here with us? Because no matter what our story may have been, no matter what brokenness, no matter what shame, no matter what guilt, no matter what sin, no matter how dark, how dirty, or how sinful it might be, I know the God who can redeem all things for his glory. Amen? And we get to share his name each and every day. And so as we close today, as we head into a few songs, I want to invite you into the moment right here, right now to once again ask God to bring somebody to your mind, bring somebody to your heart. Who needs to be here with you next week? Ask God, God, what opportunities, what ways am I going to bring them here with me? I want to ask you to Join me in prayer right now. I want to ask you actually to stand and join me in prayer if you would. Jesus, we are so thankful that you came here to earth to save, to redeem, and to restore what was broken, what was lost, and what was deemed dirty. All back to you. Father, I ask that right now in this moment. I ask that you would just move us, Lord, that you would just move us to the side and that you would just clearly paint for us who you are leading us to have those conversations with today. What opportunities might we be having today that we can just uh, invite them with us? God, I ask that you would just do what only you can do. So, Father, I pray that whatever brokenness, whatever shame and guilt and sin we may be carrying, Lord, that you would just redeem it right now, Lord. That you would just forgive it right now. That we would confess with our mouths and our lives that you are God. That we truly believe that you died for our sins so that we could be with you eternally. So, Father, I just ask that you just hear our prayers, hear our cries of our hearts right now. As you do, Father, would you just speak to us, directly into us. We love you, Lord. We praise in your name.